Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Swizzitz Teller. Swizz, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm a software engineer. I've been doing this pretty much all my life, but professionally for 10 years or so. I've mostly been focusing my career on working with early stage and mid-stage startups. I'm currently at a Series B company, which is super exciting. And on the side, I like to write blogs, uh, create books, make courses, and that sort of thing, just trying to share what I've learned and hopefully help other people enjoy this career because I think it's amazing. Yeah, fantastic. I feel you are very much a kindred spirit who uh, gets a lot out of helping people and serving others. So you're on junior to senior. And so probably uh, we can just jump right into, I think, one of the biggest questions that I like to ask people and tease apart on this show, which is, do you have like a good way to communicate the difference between a senior engineer and a junior engineer? Like, is it just years of experience or is it something? Oh, that's an amazing question. So I think there's a couple different ways you can look at that. There's uh, obviously a lot of junior, most juniors just don't have a lot of experience yet. And that's totally expected. But then what happens in, especially in modern companies, is that if you stick around, you get the senior title in a couple of years and you have the senior title. But that's not exactly the same as being a true senior engineer, where I think the main difference between a someone who's a junior, a mid-level or a senior engineer is that the senior engineers have some this sort of wisdom and some part of it comes from battle scars. Part of it comes from having varied experience rather than, you know, there's you can have one year of experience five times, or you can actually have five years of experience. Totally. They're very different things. So I think it does, in a lot of ways, it does come down to experience, but I think a lot of it is also about the mindset of what you think it is that engineers do and what your goal is in an organization. So when you when you say wisdom, do you have... And then like, what comes to mind when you think of somebody who has wisdom versus somebody who doesn't? Like, what's the difference in how they would or respond a situation? Uh, I think a great, great relatable example for that is if you want to really see if somebody is senior, ask them about their, what they think about the dry principle. Do not repeat yourself. And I feel like the more junior somebody is, the more obsessed they are with their code following some sort of textbook perfection and being perfect and writing amazing abstractions. And, oh my God, if we repeat this code, that's going to be terrible and everything's going to collapse and our company is going to turn into a black hole and all of the developers are going to be swallowed in. Whereas a senior is like, eh, whatever, I can I can find and replace all. And that's way easier than dealing with your weird abstraction that nobody understands. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's much easier to deal with repetition than to like unabstract something like yeah i that's funny that you mentioned that example in my head i just almost think like the junior developers thinking that the best engineer is like the gzip algorithm or something like that yeah um i once saw yeah i once saw a talk where there was sort of this live coding example of mm -hmm. refactoring you know an app where they just took the dry principle to like the most ludicrous extreme to make that point. But 
to abstract what you're saying a little bit, is it it's like those dogma or these particular principles, you don't really need to take them to the extreme. And and there's always uh, reasons to not follow it all the true. Yeah, I, I think it's about having the insight to know when to break the rules and that there aren't actually that many rules or any rules at all. And I think what what a lot of seniors, the more senior people tend to focus on is delivering value and delivering business value. Because it's very easy in programming to fall into a trap where you're making yourself feel clever <laughs> and amazing. And you're, oh my God, I just solved this in the most elegant, amazing way possible. And you're very proud of yourself. And you forget that you just spent a week working on something that should you have know, taken two hours. Solution, the $1 problem. Exactly. Yeah. And then I think the the other part that fits into that too is that if you do spend an entire week with the most elegant, compact, brilliant way of of doing something, are you now the only person that can touch that in the future? Are you the only one that can understand it? Are you the only one that can maintain it? Or are you free to go on to other things? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. There's the, well, (laughs) rule, the principle that uh, debugging code is about twice as hard as writing code. So if you're at your most cleverest when you're writing code, how will you ever fix the <laughs> leave some room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gotta leave. I love that. That's amazing. Um, I think it's also for me personally. I know that when I was starting out, I was mostly focusing on just solving the problem. Then when solving problems became relatively, I was pretty certain that I can solve most problems at least eventually. I started thinking about how I can solve them beautifully. And the elegant code, and I definitely shot myself in the foot a lot of times where the code looked great, but I had no idea what it was doing anymore, to where now I'm almost thinking more about, okay, so if I write this, how can I write it in the most stupidest, simple way possible? Because I want other engineers on the team to be able to fix it. And most importantly, I want people to be able to fix it when... The house is on fire and we have a production outage and we need to fix this in five minutes right now immediately. Or, you know, just, hey, you have 20 minutes between all of the stupid meetings or even good meetings, but you have this 20 minute hole, you're distracted, you're thinking about something else. And the actual code you're working on feels like the lowest priority that on your priority list. It's more like this is just a, a little issue that I have to get through on my on my ultimate goal on what I'm trying to actually achieve. So how do you write code for those situations? How can you how can you write it in a way that somebody who's distracted, busy and whose goal isn't to make this piece of code work, how can you make it debuggable and usable for them? Yeah, I'm imagining like a MacBook, right? Like a MacBook Pro, absolutely, you know, beautiful, mm-hmm. designed, it looks you know, so different. But like, if you ever try and fix something on the inside, it's like, good luck. You know, the special screwdriver oh, yeah. and the thing to separate the, the glue mm-hmm. and the, you know, this, that, and the other thing. It's, it's yep. just not, it's not the same, right? Exactly. As, as something that was made to uh, mm-hmm. fixed. And so, yeah. Now, I was going to say that their MacBooks are a great example because they're so unrepairable that Apple doesn't even repair them. If anything <laughs> is wrong, they just replace it. <laughs> they just give you a new one. Yeah. I mean, and that's just not an option in on a on a production team. It's not mm-hmm. like, well, we don't know what's going on here, so just give us a couple of months, and we're just going to rewrite the whole thing. It's like, no, that's not that's not how. And how that's when the CEO work. is like, 
you want to do what? Are you insane? We got to make money in those two months. Absolutely. Okay. So for you, like, is there, you know, because I think we're in agreement that it's not really about years of experience. So is mm -hmm. there a faster way to become senior or ultimately is it tied to experience where it's like, well, you know, but it is these things like you could definitely spend 10 years and not get them, but you also can't get them faster than 10 years. Like, is there is there something a listener can do to try and, and speed this up? So I think one way to speed it up, and this may be controversial when you look at the learning patterns online, is to learn less stuff. Pick an area and go deeper in it, because that way you can, you can breach the part of having, like we said in the beginning, one year of experience five times versus five years of experience. The more focused you are on a specific area, the easier it will be to get those year, that experience over time rather than repeating the same experience. In your head, is that kind of like if you keep sort of a stretched uh, example would be something like you have learned how to do Hello World in 17 different languages, JavaScript and Ruby and Python and Rust and Go. But all of those are so similar. So they wind up being the same first year repeated as opposed to you know, just picking one and going deeper and expo like experiencing newer and more yeah. sophisticated problems. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Um, if you work, like the best way to do this is to work on one app or one project and expand it over time. So if you start with the hello world in say Ruby or JavaScript, okay, you have the hello world, then instead of learning hello world in a different technology, try adding features to the hello world, make it do something new, then put it out to people, see what happens when others are using it. And kind of the real art of engineering, especially in software, is how you respond to those evolving requirements. That's where I think that's where most of the experience comes from is how to write code that's going to stand the test of time and actually be unprovable upon how will you add new features to it? How will you fix bugs? That sort of thing. Yeah, I like what you just said because it's it ties into what you also uh, just said about delivering value, right? You you want to put it out there. You want to see how people react to it, and then and then learn from that, and then add features and make changes that provide more and more value. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think you were alluding to, which is that oftentimes the real skill is doing that in a maintainable way, right? So it's almost like you're you're building this tower where every level becomes harder because it's higher up and you're you're on mm -hmm. you almost need a stronger and stronger foundation the higher and higher you go and that seems to be the skill is how can you keep building value on top of that foundation without the whole thing falling over. Like is that is that what you're kind of how you think about it? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, except one thing in software that we can't do in real life, or at least I don't think we can, maybe the real engineers know something I don't, is how do you build that tower, keep making it taller, except once you get to the fifth level, you're already you're also rebuilding the basement level at the same time as you're building the 10th level. And and while thinking about how the twentieth level is going to fit onto all of that, sure. I mean, I definitely, I definitely agree that the metaphor breaks down a little bit. I feel like software has this other constraint too, where uh, you'll wind up having the ground floor wired up directly to the to the top floor, and way too many things are connected when they shouldn't be, which you wouldn't really get in a physical building as well. But you know, you do learn how to avoid that. Yeah. 
as well. So what, I mean, did, was this, did you personally have a project that, that you used to do this, like on your own time? Was it just you worked at a company where you could work on the same service for a long time? Because I know, I know some people, I feel like, okay, so, so agencies, right, oftentimes um, have lots of different projects all the time, and they might have a deadline where it's shipped, and then it's gone, and they don't work on it anymore. Do you feel like that's a disadvantage? And if so, like, is that just going to cause problems? Yeah. So I started my career actually in high school working for a web agency. And that was my, most of my experience was I, while I was working on bigger, better projects all the time, as I got better and they trusted me with bigger stuff, it was still just, Hey, make a web app. It's going to do these things and then move on to the next web app. And it's going to do the same things. So one way I forced myself to learn to have this experience over time was to start working on a framework for all of these similar websites because I figured, well, I'm see I keep seeing the same problems all over, over and over. Why don't I just solve them for every future project and build a framework for this? <laughs> and that turned out to be kind of a good idea, also kind of a terrible idea. It turns out that when you're 17, 18, you have a lot of really like high-flying ideas, but most of them turn out to not work that well in real life. Mm. Uh, but that framework did run in production for a while, so I was pretty proud of that. And then as a, as a solo freelancer, all of that got even worse. I ended up having basically no experience over time. Every project was, because especially as a freelancer, usually you focus on a particular type of company, particular problem, and you're just repeating your expertise over and over, and you're not really growing as an engineer. So what I realized was that joining product companies, especially startups, is where you can really learn this very well. Because they exist at this sort of great intersection of being early stage enough, especially startups, they're early stage enough where you get to see a lot of different parts of the stack and you get to really think about how things are going to go. And when features change or when priorities change, it's on you to adapt to that. Whereas at the bigger company, I feel like you can easily get siloed off or go on to a, a special pet project or something like that. So that's been my experience is that going to a product-focused startup is a really good way to rapidly learn hmm. a lot of things and to be kind of thrown in the deep end and be forced to really grow very quickly. Uh, so maybe that's the hack to getting a lot of experience very quickly is to go into a growing startup and just be like, well, you're either going to figure it out or the whole thing's going to fail. And like what kind of like, so to get concrete, like what stage, I mean, are you thinking like, oh, you go for like a series A or like a seed company that early or more, more like the company that you're at series B or like, could it even be, you know, later stage? Like what, what, so, what do you have in your head is like the right time? I've been pretty lucky that I've been able to see a big part of that evolution. So I've been at startups from the, I've been at a startup that we grew from the like five guys in a basement level to a series A. That was a lot of learning, took a lot of time, but I learned a lot. The way you approach engineering when it's five guys in a basement to when you have like uh, seven figures in annual revenue is very different. And I've now, the current company I'm at, I was lucky or fortunate enough to grow from a relatively big Series A to a huge Series B. And that has also been a completely different approach to engineering. And I've learned a lot just in this past year doing that. 
What I haven't done is be at really big companies. But from what I've heard, what often happens in very large companies is that you kind of lose the perspective of how everything fits together because everything is fragmented between so many different teams. It's a great place to go deep into a specific technology or a specific area, but I feel like it usually isn't a great way to get broad and varied experience. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely worked at some very large companies like Disney, AT&T, and you can wind up working on yeah. a very small part, a very small section, like a very big project. Or, you know, you can you know sometimes work in a little bit more of like an R&D capacity, but then you're not really going to be working on something people are yeah. using or you any kind of market feedback from. Like, technically, it might be in production, but it's very different that that's actually making money. Yeah. I follow a lot of people on Twitter who work at big companies, and based on what they say, it almost sounds more like academia than actual business engineering. Oh, I think there's overlap. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely overlap for sure. I know all sorts of people. I know somebody who was at Amazon and he joined and they were like, okay, you're a new team. You're going to make this amazing product. It needs to be ready to launch in three years. Go. Or uh, at a different company, somebody was like, hey, we need this button to be really absolutely perfect. It's going to be used every day by millions, if not billions of people. And this poor person ended up spending six months working on a button, essentially. But it was a really good, very perfect button that works in all sorts of cases. Uh, to me personally, that's yeah. not as fun. I like seed stage is, I feel like seed stage is great when you're in your 20s and you're, you're optimizing for fast learning. If you're the kind of person who learns well by being thrown in the deep end, if you're not, do not go into a seed stage company. It usually doesn't pay as well. So I think... Now that I'm a little older, Series A, Series B feels like the sweet spot where you still have a lot of impact on the engineering culture, on the engineering approaches. You get to see a lot of different parts of the app. You get to work on a lot of different things. And you're also growing it at the same time and figuring out how to do those things we talked about where you're reshaping the app, reshaping things into, into getting them set up to for fast growth or for future requirements. Uh, but you're also getting paid what you would expect an engineer to get paid these days, at least in the US. They can actually afford afford to pay money and not just in, in lottery tickets. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And so in terms of like a path, right? So so if you were to if that's a really good place to to learn and I mean I think the I guess real quick, I think the the other piece of advice that I've often heard is that if you're really um, junior and you're starting out and they can't really just be thrown into the deep end, like you're not comfortable with that, then it does seem like there's a lot of advice to join a much larger company where the pressure is lower, um, people have a lot of time, they might have like more formal mentorship and training set up. It just might be a lot kinder and less fast paced. Yeah. Or they almost have like internal boot camps where... They only they just expect you to spend the first six months just learning and you're not expected to you don't really have any expectations. You just learn stuff. Yeah. I mean, personally, like I think it's probably to depending on your taste. For me, I, I agree with the getting thrown into a deep end. I think that <laughs> I think that's much more my speed. I think you can learn much faster. Yeah. Uh, I think having the freedom to experiment, you know, like you did sometimes write your own framework, even though. Uh, I would recommend having a lot of humility and not really expecting it to be 
the greatest, most world-changing thing, but learning from what it's yep. like to take bigger and bigger bites and bigger swings and learning. So you're not going to have generally the same free to do that at larger, later stage companies. So what I was going to get into is, okay, so say someone starts out at a company like that, like what are the different career paths? Like is the idea just forever to, to be at bigger and bigger startups or to stick with a startup and then try and climb up to CTO or what are the different ways to go from there? Uh, great question. So there's always that it almost feels like a joke, but I think it's also kind of true. You're a junior developer for two or three years, then you're a mid-level engineer, which usually doesn't even have a separate title. And then a senior engineer, you know, is anyone from between five years and 30 years of experience. I think the actual titles aren't that important. They don't translate that well between different companies because uh, it depends a lot on the company size. It depends a lot on what the company is doing, how they think about compensation. There's, especially in the startup world, you can be director of engineering at a startup. But then when you when you get acquired by by Facebook, that director of engineering title translates to the first level of management or something like that. So I think generally speaking, or at least for me personally, the way to grow once you've once you've gotten out of that junior mid-level stage where the coding starts being kind of table stakes and you feel like, hey, you know, I can code, I can, with enough time and uh, freedom, I can solve pretty much any problem. The coding really becomes table stakes, right? So I think from there, it gets interesting. Some people go towards the more management path where it's more uh, leading others and coaching others, mentoring others, and kind of getting more impact that way. And others go in the more engineering aspect or on the engineering track where it's actually still a lot of leadership and um, coaching and mentoring, but you're nobody's actual manager. It's more like exhibiting your soft influence and kind of steering the technical direction of the company or of your division or depends on where you are on the size of the company you're at, but kind of going more into that, into the force multiplier role where while you're not a manager, your role becomes more, okay, how can I make it so others are more productive in this code base? Or how can I solve this really gnarly, terrible problem that nobody else wants to touch? And I'm going to be able to figure it out eventually, but then also package it in a way so that nobody else in the company has to solve these same problems or even think about them or potentially even know how it actually works and kind of building those those sorts of abstractions. And uh, I think that's where, for me personally, that's where it seems more interesting because management- Sounds like we're back to the to creating the, the framework. Yeah, we're back to creating the framework, but less of a framework, more maybe more like patterns or encouragement. It becomes a lot of advocacy internally to like nudge people in the right direction, get a lot of, I, I'm- I can't think of the word, but kind of get people on the same page and pulling in the same direction, not so much through outright mentorship and authority or not outright management and authority, more through, hey, you know, this is a really cool tech and it can solve these problems for us. What if we start gently, slowly moving in that direction? In my head, like I'm almost thinking that in some ways this is like what people in DevRel, uh, developer relations people, like you always see them 
giving talks at conference, releasing, you know, open source libraries and writing up to proposals and things like that. It's, it's almost like what they do, but internally, it's a lot of those skills wind up getting valued. Or, you know, oftentimes in open source projects or just in open standards, there's people on committees that are often writing up long, necessarily long, but, you know, lots of comments about how things should work and ramifications of doing things this way, mm -hmm. writing up proposals, proof of concepts, things like that. I think those skills are also in line with what you're talking about. But again, not outward, but more internally company facing. Is that kind of what you have in your in your minds? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. It's very similar. It's a lot like that. Just like you said, more internal. I think primarily it boils down to how can you leverage your time better and your expertise, uh, almost more your expertise than your time. Because at some point you become, this This sounds always sounds weird when I say it, but at some point you become so good that writing the code yourself is a waste of your time. Or it's rather, for the company, it's too expensive to have somebody like you writing the code because uh, there's a lot of others who can write the same code if you help get them on that level. Right. Like if you go from doing the thing to knowing how to do the thing, and then once you can share that, it's much better to for you to teach five others how to do it rather than for you to spend that time just doing it yourself. In the end, the yeah. company is better off with more people, you know, because a lot of the, the knowledge, it's shareable, copyable. It's not like you lose it when you give it to someone else. So that's how, you know, there's it being a gain. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't matter how good of an engineer or a coder you are. A team of five people is always going to outcode you, no matter what. Oh, but what if you're a 10x engineer? <laughs> well, I think a 10x engineer secretly is 10x because there's 10 other people that they're force multiplying. <laughs> That's probably right. I don't know if I, I don't know if I believe in the 10x engineer. What do you What do you think about that? You think it's just there being the force multiplier? I think a lot of it is that they're a force multiplier and. I think the other part is that there's a lot of companies that don't actually have to figure out how to phrase this so it doesn't sound too terrible. Oh, I hope it sounds terrible. That's more interesting. <laughs> so I do think there are 10x engineers, but I think the reason they're 10x is because the average engineer is not that great, or at least if they are great, they're usually, they're very rarely incentivized to be great. Well, there's also, I mean, but the environment plays a part too, right? It's, exactly. You know, who's going to win a lion or a shark? It depends where, where they're fighting. Not that everything has to be about a fight, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. It comes down to that uh, thing I said earlier. It doesn't matter how good of an engineer you are. It's going to be very hard to do really, really good deep work if you have 10 minutes at a time to write your code. Mm -hmm. And other, other times you're just pinging between different bug reports and meetings and stuff like that. I think that's what brings down the average of uh, engineering effort. And then it comes down to the environment you're in, how good your manager is at shielding you, uh, stuff like that. Okay. So we, we've talked about this path uh, you can take. So just coding, solving problems, the, the puzzle solving part of the job. Mm -hmm becomes table stakes. It's just expected. Like you've got that mostly covered. And then it seems like the next rung of the ladder, the step for that progression is more thought leadership, more thought sharing. Like you are now 
not just able to solve problems and puzzles, but you are now influencing the way that others think about those problems, think about those puzzles and how they solve them. Where does it go from there? Or is it just, is that kind of it, just more of that? I think a lot of it is more of that, but it also gets to the strategic level of what is worth building, what should we build. It's also about, okay, well, we're solving this problem right now as a team, but we also know that we have this other problem coming down the pipe six months from now. As the company grows, we're going to hit this wall. How can we help ourselves solve that wall six months from now? Or really an interesting example I had recently that happened to me was where our head of engineering got an email from one of our API providers saying, oh, whoa, whoa, you, if you don't do this thing, you might incur costs and get into terrible trouble and stuff is going to stop working. So obviously the head of engineering freaked out and sent it to us and said, guys, you got to fix this. Uh, It's going to happen in the beginning of October. We got to be ready by then. Not part of our sprint, not part of any of our priorities. Shit, right? So, but I looked at that and just based on my experience, it sounded a lot like a sales email, not like an actual hard engineering requirement. And it turned out that Digging into that, we ended up having a 30-minute meeting with the API provider. And lo and behold, after we explained to the provider what our actual needs are and what our planned trajectory for how the company is going to evolve, they were like, oh yeah, you're right. You don't need any of this. And basically a 30-minute meeting Hmm. saved us two or three days of work. It's not really engineering. It's not really coding. But it's a huge value add to the company if you're able to spot those kinds of opportunities. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the amount of money that you save and the maintenance of like, you know, building a feature is expensive Mm -hmm. in terms of how many hours of engineer time go into. It's also expensive in terms of opportunity cost because you're not building another during that time. And once it's in the world it's likely to encounter users which have a terrible habit of finding bugs and you do more work. So there's also the cost of ongoing maintenance. And so when you can get all of the benefit of that feature without any of the cost of actually building it, I mean, that's a huge, huge win. And I think that really goes to the wisdom that you had mentioned early on, because I think a lot of engineers, and you you just kind of just said this, it was like, is this engineering? And it is and it isn't. And I think a lot of engineers early in their career, like they all they want to do is they want to code. And so anytime they're presented with a problem, the solution automatically has to be uh, building a feature and not Mm -hmm. figuring out ways to get the same benefit without building the feature. And I think that's, in my mind, that really goes to the wisdom that I think talked about earlier. So I think that's a really good. So if they don't go, if they don't go down this road of more thought leadership and sharing how to do things, what do the other paths look like? I think one path you can go down is becoming an expert in a really specific sort of problem, like, or a specific technology and just solving bigger or more valuable problems. That's always great. Or I think what a lot of engineers end up doing, which feels kind of like a missed opportunity to me, because I personally like to increase the value I'm providing to companies or to whoever I work with rather than, no. So I think what I, what I try to aim for in my career, at least, is how to increase my impact and my value. But what a lot of people end up doing instead of doing, instead of going down that path is to kind of just become a junior in a new piece of technology. So it's like, okay. 
I figured out everything there is to figure out about JavaScript and React or Vue or whatever, I'm now going to go learn Rust. And you bring over some of the experience, but you're also kind of resetting the ladder by a lot. And that's a totally valid path, but I personally think that in a lot of cases, that can be a missed opportunity. And so what what would be the alternative? To keep going with uh, JavaScript and React and just specialize a little bit more? Or how would that work? Yeah, it's... Wow, I am realizing how unclear my thoughts are on this subject. Uh, I think... <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I know you do, you know, workshops yeah. and, and trainings. Is that the line that you're thinking of? Or is it something else? Yeah, I think there's there's basically maybe four ways to grow as an engineer. I described this once. You can either just keep going with a bigger, better company that has bigger problems for you to solve. You can totally stay a senior engineer and just keep doing, and you have like 10 years of experience, and then you repeat those that last year 10 more times, which is a totally valid career path. And I think a lot of people end up doing that either because they want to or because that's just how it happens. Because, um, you know, coding is fun. I love solving interesting challenges. Oh, my God. It's the best when you get, you know, in, in that yeah. flow state, like time exactly. just flies by and then you started with nothing and then you have something that's really useful or yeah, entertaining. Exactly. Like, that's a great feeling. It's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. But it does eventually, you know, after you've built your 10th checkout form, you may get a little bored <laughs> of that. That's what I mean about finding a company that has newer in bigger challenges because the company itself is growing and be- and improving. Uh, you can you can become an entrepreneur either by becoming a consultant. You've built a really high level of expertise in something specific or a specific type of company, and you can grow that way. And it's usually, again, a lot more like you're the world's best person in building checkout forms, which is great because now you can do it really quickly and it's easy for you. And there's a lot of companies out there who will pay you a lot of money to build their checkout forms, and then you can jump between them. Or you can go and go like be a manager or even start like a new startup where you are building the next generation checkout form for anyone who wants to ever build a checkout form and wants to just press a button rather than hire an engineer. That's also totally valid, but most of those end up being a different career than the actual engineering part. Got it. So how does one know which one is like a good fit for them? Like, I mean, is it really just the only way you know is, is okay, I'm going to go leave and start my own checkout flow company? Or are there ways that you would be able to predict like that's a, so, a good, yeah. good fit for you? The advice that I've read about this and have never taken myself because I'm a bad person <laughs> is to find people who have done that and talk to them. I think one of the nice things about engineering, the engineering industry is that everyone's very open to talking. Everyone would yeah. love to just share their thoughts. And if you if you approach anyone and say, hey, I see that you're doing this really cool thing and you're an expert and like the most amazing, impressive person ever, can I buy you coffee and we chat for 30 minutes? Almost everyone's going to say yes to that. So that's one way to kind of preemptively see it. Another way, especially with the more entrepreneurial paths, is to kind of just start on the side and see if you like it, see if you enjoy it, see if it's something that you want to do and like write a book and publish it or start freelancing on nights and weekends or Carl Newport in his book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, has a really good tip where he calls most of what we talked about so far a career capital. And he says that once you have enough career capital, you may be able to negotiate less work for the same pay or just less work for whatever 
and that gives you more time in the day, in the week, and you can use that extra time to explore different paths. Yeah, I mean, you know, one way to think about career or value, sort of like a company would, is profitability. So you have revenue, you can think of it as your salary or your rate or anything like that, but you're also going to have a cost, and that ultimately is your time. So your profitability goes up if you can keep the same rate or salary, but decrease mm -hmm. your costs. So the line that goes in. And so that is a, that's certainly a good thing to in mind for sure. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of thinking of your job as a client rather than a job and generally of yourself as a business because you are exchanging value for money with other businesses. And personally, I find that to be a much healthier way of thinking about it. Looking from the job searching perspective to the job doing perspective, if you think of yourself as a business who's delivering on a contract or on an agreement, that is so much better and healthier than the way a lot of people approach jobs where it's almost like, I deserve a job, you need to give it. I don't know how to phrase that very well, but yeah. it's like... Well, it, it, for me, like what comes to mind for like probably the worst form of that is like mm -hmm. your company's your parent and they, they sort of just like owe you an allowance and a roof over your head and all this stuff. Like, you know, you can like kind of do your chores, but even if you don't, they still have to yeah. love you and like make sure you don't starve. And I think there are benefits to not having you so transactional. Like I understand the idea of having a little bit of space and room to be a really good contributor to a company that you can think a little bit more long-term and you can kind of do bigger projects. And it's not like, what have you done for me? lately, which might be, but I think there's room in the middle. And in fact, I'm a huge proponent of, of what you're talking about, which is having much more of a consultant mindset rather than employee mindset and thinking about who, who your client is and what the results that they expect are and doing, doing what you can to get that. Uh, on a personal note, even when I was at Disney, I largely kind of pretended that I was a one-person agency within the company. And I would routinely take people from other departments out to lunch as a form of like biz dev to hear what kinds of problems they were encountering. And, and if you're a developer, you have a superpower compared to what other people can do. Like, you know, you are effectively a magic user and everyone else is a muggle and you can make their lives so much easier with automation and building apps, it's really just this superpower. And if you think about it that way, you can get noticed within a company really quick, which yeah. can lead to all kinds of good stuff. Or another way of thinking about it that I also like is as a professional athlete. If you look at uh, mm. race car drivers or F1 drivers, for example, when uh, Ricardo recently has moved through a lot of teams, when he was at Red Bull, it's like, I'm Red Bull, we are Red Bull, rah, 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 Red Bull, everything, we're amazing, we're family, blah, blah, blah. But then he switches to Renault and it's immediately, yep, I'm Renault, Renault is great, we are <laughs> Renault, we are the best. It's like, you don't have to be a mercenary about it, but you know, it's still a business relationship. Yeah, I love that. Um, hey, Swizz, this has been great. Where can people find out more about you online? Yeah, so I have a blog at swizzets.com. You can find me on Twitter at swizzets. I'm writing about the senior senior mindset stuff. I'm exploring how career how senior engineers think, how ca careers work at seniormindset.com. It's a 
what I'm told is a really good um, mailing list or email series. So I would love for everyone to check it out. Well, I think that is uh, definitely on point for a lot of our listeners. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Remote work is here to stay. I can show you how to find and hire a full team of remote senior engineers for a quarter of what you'd pay at local rates. To learn more, check out superstruct.tech slash four phase. That's F-O-U-R dash P-H-A-S-E.